Ray and Sharon Cease, Alan and Peggy Marvin, and Karen Dady were used to light Nero's garden last week by being burned as human torches. Two weeks from today, an event is planned where Zach Shane, Charles Krauss, Janie Yeager, and Jeff Zimmerman will be thrown to the lions as great crowds cheer as they're torn to pieces. Fear of Nero is present. That was reality in Rome. The believers in Rome have no Old Testament copy of Scripture. There is no completed New Testament. They are tempted to question whether following Jesus is worthwhile. Is Jesus who he claimed to be? Why the persecution if we're following Christ? Oh, how they need encouragement. What better encouragement than a letter from Mark? Sharing concerning the identity of Christ, the character of Christ, and the action of Christ. Understand, as we interact with Mark's gospel, the perspective of the original hearers. They needed to hear about Christ and find encouragement in him. And as we have found to this point in Mark, as we have found to this point in Mark that Jesus was who he claimed to be. He is unique. He is God's son. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He is a father who is pleased with him. He is yielded to God's spirit. He is able to resist Satan. He is intimately intimately related to the kingdom of God. He taught with authority. He commanded an evil spirit to come out of a man. Has authority over demons, over sickness. Is able to forgive sins. He knew what the teachers of the law were thinking. He healed the paralytic to show that he had the authority to forgive sins and had the authority to call Levi to be a follower of him. As the Roman believers heard this, I'm sure they were encouraged to go on for Christ. As we discuss gospel, the gospel of Mark, be encouraged because of Christ and who he is. And as we look at a part of Mark chapter 2, keep in mind that in Mark 2, 1 through 12, Jesus and his authority is questioned. And he said, I have the authority to heal someone, and I have the authority to forgive sins. Jesus had the authority to call a tax collector to follow him. He had the authority, as we discussed this, this morning, to make a pronouncement concerning fasting and saying that my followers don't need to fast because I, the bridegroom, am with them. He had the authority to give some teaching concerning the Sabbath. And he had the authority to heal on the Sabbath. Then in chapter 3 and verse 7, we find a summary of Christ and his authority. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 2, reading together verses 18 through 22. Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Mark chapter 2, beginning with verse 18. 
Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, Jesus answered, As we think about this portion of scripture, there's some customs, background information that I think open this portion of scripture to understanding. And we'll look at some of them this morning and then see how that might fit into our day-by-day living. The scripture says, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. John's disciples, we're referring to John the Baptist, who prepared the way for Jesus in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came. John's disciples referring to the disciples of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was beheaded during the ministry of Jesus. Mark chapter 6 refers to that as well as several other Gospels. So he ministered. He knew that he must decrease. Christ must increase. He ended up in prison and then was beheaded. Two of the disciples of John, we know that they became part of the 12 who were called to follow Christ. John's fame and his followers survived his death, and in some cases even probably competed with Christ and who Christ was. So we have John's disciples. We also have the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees' origin is unclear, but they arose sometime during the Maccabean revolt in 168 BC. So they've been around for some two centuries. Pharisees, we find that Jesus get into some trouble with them quite often. The name means separate ones or holy ones. They considered themselves separate. They were holy because of their traditions and so on. They stood on the solid rock of the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy. They stood very, very strongly on that. They were not a political party. They were a religious group. It was a lay movement that surpassed some other movements that were present during the time of Christ. Josephus would say that about the time of Christ, there may have been some 6,000 Pharisees. The Pharisees were regarded as authorized successors of the Torah who sat in the seat of Moses. That's how they viewed themselves. Their beliefs, they believed in the sovereignty of God, human accountability for virtue and vice, the resurrection of the dead, they believed in angels, 
They believed in demons. They had a tremendous emphasis on traditions and conformity to the legal prescription, but neglected the heart. And that's very important to understand as you think about the Pharisees. Jesus stood fairly close to the Pharisees in terms of beliefs. But the issue of contention of Jesus and the Pharisees came primarily over the issue of tradition. R. Kent Hughes says concerning the Pharisees, and I quote, The Pharisees were like this too. They actually whited their faces, put ashes on their heads, wore their clothes in shoddy disarray, refused to wash, and looked for loan as possible. You could could not be spiritual unless you were uncomfortable. They thought spirituality makes you do things you do not want to do and keeps you from doing things you want to do. End of quote. We'll find that Jesus confronts that quite strongly. So we have John's disciples and the Pharisees. They're fasting. The scriptures commanded... Fasting only once a year on the Day of Atonement, which was a national day of repentance, a national day of forgiveness. Leviticus 16 and verse 24. But by Jesus' time, the Pharisees had decreed that godly people should fast twice a week on the second and fifth day, on Mondays and Thursdays. The Pharisees' attitude derived from, among other things, the false assumption that religion was a solemn, joyless affair, an assumption that some people even hold today. I grew up in one of those traditions. So we find John's disciples, the Pharisees, are fasting. And some people come to Jesus and ask, how is it John's disciples and disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? And Jesus' response, how can the guest of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? If we're going to understand this passage of Scripture, we need to understand a little bit about weddings in Bible times. Against the backdrop of fasting, Jesus' volunteers, there's a festive nature of a wedding feast. A wedding celebration in Jewish culture in that day would have lasted seven days for a virgin bride and three days for a remarried widow. Friends and guests had no responsibility but to enjoy the festivities. There was an abundance of food and wine, as well as song and dance and fun in the house and on the street. Even rabbis were expected to stop from instructing concerning the Torah and enjoy the celebration with their students. The guest of the bridegroom pictures the gathering of the wedding party, waiting patiently to eat. Any any thought of fasting at that moment is out of the question. 
the use of the wedding imagery with regard to a question about fasting radically alters the challenge to his authority. Jesus is being asked, the disciples fast. That is, John's disciples fast. The disciples of the Pharisees fast. And your disciples are not fasting. What's going on? The difference between Jesus and the disciples of John and the Pharisees pertains to the fact that Jesus is present. Jesus describes his mission as a wedding. Himself, the bridegroom, and his disciples, the guest of the bridegroom. A wedding is not a time to abstain. A wedding is a time to live it up. Jesus, again, thrust his person and his mission to center stage. How can the guest, how can my disciples, who are the guests of the bridegroom, fast while he is with them? I am the bridegroom. And it's interesting, if you go back to the Old Testament, you'll find in the Old Testament that God is the husband of Old Testament Israel. And when Jesus says, how can the guest of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? He is saying, I'm the bridegroom. Who's the bride? We know that believers are, as we read on in the New Testament. We know that those who are considered friends of the bridegroom at this point in time, the disciples of Christ, would later become the bride. Or, uh, yeah, become the bride. So how can the disciples of Jesus be fasting when the bridegroom is with them. After an ancient Jewish wedding, the couple did not go on a honeymoon, as many do today, but stayed at home for a week of open house in which there was continual feasting and celebration. For the hard-working, this was traditionally considered to be the happiest week in their lives. The bride and the groom were treated like a queen and a king. They were attended by chosen friends called guests of the bridegroom, which means literally children of the bride's chamber. The guests were exempted from fasting during this week, all in attendance, enjoyed the celebration. For those of us who are on the other side of the cross, For the writer or readers of Mark, I think tremendously encouraging because of the bridegroom, Christ. And there's reason for joy because Christ died, he arose from the dead. We've been given the Spirit of God. And there is reason for per- perpetual joy. Christianity becomes perpetual joy for those who take it and cultivate it. The early Christians were even accused of being drunk. 
The first Franciscans were reproved for laughing in church because they were so happy. The first converts of the Reformed Carmelians were happy places because there was an insistence on musical instruments and a time of joy in corporate worship. The first Salvationist or Salvation Army people jumped for joy because General Booth told them that if they felt the Spirit move them, they should leap in a hymn or a prayer, and they did. There's perpetual joy. Why? Because the bridegroom. Who is Christ? The bridegroom. Who's the bride today? The body of Christ. He says something else in this text. Not only is he the bridegroom, Jesus says in verse 21, no one takes a patch of unshrunken cloth or sews a patch of unshrunken cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. So what would happen? They would make a garment. They would wash the garment and the garment would shrink. So the shrunken garment would be worn and it gets a hole in. So they're going to patch the garment. And they take a piece of new material, sew it on the old garment. And what happens? The garment is washed. The patch shrinks and pulls away from the rest of the garment. Jesus says, no one sews a patch of unshrunken cloth on the old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. As you look at the text, Jesus is saying, I'm the new garment. You can't sew me in the old. You can't sew me in the tradition of the Pharisees. You can't sew me in the Mosaic law. I'm new. He goes on. He says, and no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Again, we need to understand what was taking place in Bible times. They would take animal skins and they would make a place to store wine. So they would take the wine coming out of the wine press. They would put it in animal skins and as the wine fermented, it would expand. Stretching the animal skins. So they would use that wine. You don't take the next wine and put it in, on, or, uh, in the old wineskins because what's going to happen? As that wine ferments, it's going to stretch and it's going to burst the wineskins. What is Jesus saying? No one pours new wine into a wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No one pours new wine into or no one he pours wine into new wineskins. Jesus is saying, I'm new wine. You can't pour me into traditions of the Pharisees. You can't pour me into the Mosaic law. I'm new. Jesus says, I'm the bridegroom.
I'm new material. I'm new wine. And as the Roman believers were hearing this, oh, this following Jesus, going to Nero and being thrown into the lions or being a torch at night is really not that bad because Jesus is our bridegroom. The wedding's coming. He's new material. He's new wine. Yeah, we'll stay with Christ. We'll continue to follow Him. And that would pose a question, and I will seek to answer it. What does Jesus, as new wine and a new garment, and it's not there, but it should also be as bridegroom, look like in our daily life and our local church? Jesus is the bridegroom. We're the bride. Jesus is the new material. He's new wineskins. What might that look like? A couple thoughts. We live from desire, not duty. We live from desire, not duty. It's my duty to love my wife. God tells me I'm supposed to do that. So, honey, what would you like for me to do for you today? She says, I'm going to slap you in your face. And if you're not going to live from the desire, if you're doing your duty, forget it. Living from desire to duty. You get up tomorrow morning. Well, got to go to work. I'm supposed to be working as on to God. Get up tomorrow morning. I, as part of the bridegroom, get to go to work for God, for His honor, for His glory. I want to. It affects desire. Will you say, jobs aren't always enjoyable. That's not the issue. Desiring to work as on to God. Whatever the circumstance. There's a constraint by love not by rules. A couple weeks ago when Ruth and I were down visiting her mom, we got talking about some of our own history. We got talking about Crossroads Mennonite Church and why dad and mom left that church and why dad you know, resigned as Sunday school superintendent and so on. I remember going there as a little kid. I think I was five or six when they left there. Part of the reason they left is because there was a constraint by rules, not by love. Scott, sorry, you have to leave. You don't have a plain suit on. A plain suit is, you don't wear a tie, it buttons right up. You don't have a plain suit on. Alberta, you have to leave because you don't have the right color of dress. And you don't have a covering on. Rules. Jesus is the bride as new material, as new wine. Moves us to be constrained by love, not by, <clears throat> by rules. 
I remember very distinctly years ago when I was at a state FFA, Future Farmers of America event. Some other guys and I were together and they were going to do something that my father and mother did not desire. And it wasn't that mom and dad made a rule. And I said to the guys, I'm not sure I can be involved in that. And I didn't use this terminology, but the bottom line, the terminology was, I'm constrained by love of my parents not to do what you're doing. It's not that I'm worried about breaking the rule. I'm constrained by love. And as you think about walking with Christ, constrained by love, inner passion, not merely outward behavior. There's an inner passion, just loving God, wanting to be united to him as the bridegroom, as the new material, as the new wine. I think also an unexplainable fruitfulness, not standards, that is the fruit of the Spirit. What in the world makes Rick different on the job? And his co-workers are saying, what is it about Rick? There's something about him I don't understand. He doesn't get mad like the other guys as quickly. And he seems to have a different attitude on the job. Oh, we know he struggles, but he just seems to respond differently. What is it? The spirit. What is it about Alan? when he struggles in responding to Peggy, that eventually he gets to the point of going to Peggy and saying, Peggy, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? And Peggy says to herself, boy, must be the Spirit of God working in his life. That's new wine. Jesus. That's Jesus as a bridegroom. Jesus as the new material. I think also, as you look at the text of Scripture, as you think about Christ as bridegroom, new material, new wine, that there's an unconditional acceptance of others, not a category of people. When I was in high school, we had five sections. Sections one and two were the academic kids. Section three was a commercial. Section four was a general. And section five was the ag kids. Now, those were very distinct Sections one and two, the academic kids were the smarties. Section three was the dumbs. Section four was the dumbers. And section five was the dumber dumbers. And there was no question about it. It was very clear. I, as a dumber dumber, struggled in relating to the smarties. And even some of the dumber looked down on the dumber dumbers. Very distinct. And I, as a dumber dumber, wanted to be with the smarties part of the time because I wanted to take some academic classes. I fought a long time for that to be a reality because I thought I wanted to go to college. So here we have a dumber dumber with the smarty. That created some friction. In the body of Christ, with Christ as our bridegroom, with Christ as a new wine, with Christ as a new material, we love unconditionally and we accept one another 
unconditionally. It's not a matter of how dumb we are, how smart we are. It's not a matter of our physical appearance. It's not a matter of how much hair we have in our head. It's not a matter of how we comb our hair. It's not a matter of how outgoing we are. It's a matter that in Christ, our bridegroom, the new material, the new wine, is at work in our lives, forming himself in us. So I can put my arms around one of those guys in Ghana who doesn't take a bath as often as I do, probably never had one like I did, and say, I love you. Not thinking I'm any better or he's any worse. Can say to a guy by the name of George, you're the shepherd of this church. How do you want me to respond as a guest at your church? The church you pastor. Because of Christ. As we continue in worship, reflect on the fact that Jesus is the bridegroom. He's the new material. He's the new wine. And that doesn't have to be a solemn affair. It should be a joyous time. Travis.